Hey, do you have any weird people in your life? I don't mean bad people. I just mean those people that kind of make you uncomfortable anytime they show up. Maybe it's your Uncle Keith, who's the tiniest bit racist, you know? Keith, if you're here this morning, I'm talking about another Keith, just so we're clear. Hey, maybe it's a lady in your office, and she just has no social awareness at all, and so she corners you in conversations that you can't get away from. She's speaking, and you actually feel her breath hitting you, and you're like, oh my goodness, give me some space, lady. Maybe it's a certain president's Twitter feed. I don't know, but my guess is, I'm American, by the way, I'm allowed to say that. My guess is that there are people in your life that you think to yourself, you know, it would just be easier if I could avoid them altogether. When I see them, I just, you know, avert my eyes and busy myself over here. There are weird people in our world, and the truth of the matter is, you guys, there are weird Bible verses too. Did you know that? There are some things in the Bible that are quite strange, especially the first few times that you encounter them, things that leave you scratching your head. There are verses that make you a little uncomfortable. There are stories in the Bible that even as a pastor, honestly, there are sometimes I wish I could just avoid those stories the way I tend to avoid strange or uncomfortable people. Now, for the last month, we've actually been doing a deep dive on one of these passages in the Bible. It's a passage that has one of those strange verses where you're like, whoa, where did that come from? That was very odd. I wasn't expecting that. What could that possibly mean? I'm a little confused. I'm a bit uncomfortable hearing that verse. Like, what's going on there? So this is the final week of our series, Four Things That I Wish You Knew About God. Now, in this series, and it's okay if you showed up for the first time today, you're going to be right at home. You won't feel like you've missed out. In this series, we are looking at a moment in the Bible where God reveals himself to us. He has a conversation with a man named Moses, and he says to Moses, Moses, I want to tell you who I am. And over the last few weeks, we've said that like there are lots of people in our world that will run around telling you what God is like in their opinion. Heck, I even do that a lot of Sundays to you guys. And so we said, rather than listening to more opinions about God, we want to dig really, really deep on this one section of the Bible where God talks about himself in the first person. This is actually, according to the Bible, God revealing himself to each one of us. Now, the passage starts off so good, you guys. It has been awesome. I'm going to kind of break down the outline that we've been using over the last month. When you read this, and we'll read it together here in just a moment, when you read this, it starts so good. We find out, first of all, that God has a name, a personal proper name. God's actual personal name is Yahweh. And so we spent a whole week talking about what that means and what are the implications of God having a name. Then we said in the second week, God is love. And that sounds a bit cliche, you know, in our day to say, oh, God is love. God is loving. But it has very serious implications if you truly understand what it means. God, according to this passage, looks at each one of us the way a father looks at his children. Then last week, we talked about the fact that God is trustworthy. He is faithful in a way that no one and nothing else in your life can be. And so for three or four weeks now, we've been like, oh, yes, that's good. Woo, that's the God I love. That's the God I know. Come on, give me more. Yes, yes, yes. Then out of nowhere, God throws this line in at the end of the conversation. And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? 
How did that get put in there? God, that makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't really like the fact that you said that. Wouldn't it be easier if we could just avoid that verse altogether? I think this is one of those sections of scripture where it would just be simpler if we avoided it. Maybe if we don't talk about it, nobody will know it's in there. We can't do that though, can we? Not if we're serious about our faith. See, we've said all along that we have a responsibility to engage the Bible with what it actually says, not with what we wish it said, not with what is politically correct and easily digestible and simple for us to kind of just integrate into our lives. No, we actually have to look at the Bible and make sense of what it actually says to us. So we've been teasing it for a month. I have really drawn this thing out. What in the world is God talking about at the end of Exodus chapter number 34 when he says what he does? Now, we'll put the passage here on the screen. If you guys have been here for a couple of weeks already, you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Maybe this is the first time you're seeing it. We'll go ahead and read the whole thing so you kind of get it in context. The scripture says this, Moses and God are having a conversation together, or they're about to start a conversation. And the Bible says here in verse number five, then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with Moses. And God called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out Yahweh, or I am Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Oh, that's so good. Yes. Why is everybody not a Christian? Listen to how good God is. And then he says, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. Whoa, whoa. God needs better PR, you guys. I'm just gonna tell you that right away because if he wants to be successful in the 21st century, you can't say things like that, can you? And as Christians, if we want people to buy into what we're selling, then we need to be able to paint a nice, soft, kind of loving, never offensive picture of God, don't we? That's certainly the pressure that we feel. And again, it would be easiest if we just ignored this verse, but we cannot do that and take ourselves seriously as followers of Jesus. We have to accept what it says. Sure, we can question it. Absolutely, we should wrestle with it. We should fight through it. There are some times that it's even right to protest some of the stuff that you read in the Bible. But at some point, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to take seriously your relationship with God, then you've got to just say yes, even if you don't fully understand. You have to say yes, even if it doesn't always sit perfectly right with you. Because as we said in the first week of this series, my opinions of God cannot trump the nature of God. It doesn't really matter what I think God is, who God is, and he will do whatever it is he's going to do, regardless of what Daniel happens to think is right or good. Now, I'm gonna give you some good news right away. I just wanna relieve some of the tension this morning. This verse does not mean what you think it means, okay? This verse is not saying that God is going to punish children for the sins of their parents. That's, that's not at all what God is saying here. And we know that that's true. 
We know it's true because in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, the same guy who's having this conversation with God, he, is, he, he writes out a bunch of laws for ancient Israel, for their society to follow. And the laws are all based on his conversations with God, based on his understanding of who God is, God's character and nature and all those different things. And so he writes out these laws for everyone to follow that are based on his conversations with God. And one of the rules that he gives to their ancient society is parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor should children be put to death for the sins of their parents. He says, those who are deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. So when you compare this with the other verse that we read a moment ago, either Moses is contradicting himself or God is contradicting himself, or there's something a little deeper going on. And I'll just tell you guys, it's the last part, okay? God is not saying that the problems in your life are punishment for what your parents did, okay? It's not like, well, my grandma cheated on her taxes and that's why I got hit by a car in grade two. (laughs) True stories, by the way. True stories, by the way. Sorry, Grandma, called you out. That's not what God is saying here. Although a superficial reading might lead you to believe that, we don't want a superficial relationship with God, do we? We don't want a superficial religion. We don't want to just uncritically accept everything. We want to dig deep. We want to dive in. We want to wrestle. We want to figure it out. We want to understand what's really going on here behind the scenes. So God is not contradicting himself, nor is God saying, I'm going to punish your children if you screw up today. That's not at all what he's communicating, okay? So what does that verse in Exodus 34 mean? What does it mean when God says, I will not excuse the guilty, I will lay the sins of the parents and the grandparents onto the children? What does that actually mean? In order to explain it, we're going to go back a couple of verses in Exodus, we're going to go ahead a couple verses in the Bible, and then I think you're going to have the light bulb click on for you, okay? Let me give you a, a truth that might be the tiniest bit unsettling for you, but it shouldn't be. You ready for it? God gets angry. God gets angry. See, when we read Exodus chapter number 34, we like to focus on the fact that he says, I am slow to anger. And we're like, yes, I need a God who is slow to anger because I am quick to do the wrong thing, you guys. So I'm grateful that he's slow. And we totally ignore the fact that God tells us straight up, there are things that anger him. There are things that God does not like. There are things that are true about our world that cause him anger, frustration, dissatisfaction. We cannot overlook the fact that God actually gets angry. Now, this is tied to what we've already talked about. Remember in week two, we said God has a name. And the fact that he has a name means that he is a personal being, not an impersonal force. He's not some vague or generic concept, but he is actually a person that you can have a relationship with. This God has personhood. He has feelings. He has a name. Now, we accept uncritically the idea that God has feelings of love. We all like that, right? When we read the first parts of this passage, when we read 1 John and it says, oh, God is love, we're like, yes, I'll take that. I want a loving God. If God has feelings of love, why is it that much of a stretch to say that he could also have feelings of anger? It should not be surprising to you and to me that there would be things that anger God. 
Now, the problem is our experience with anger is very different than the anger that God is talking about here. See, my experience, and I bet yours as well, has been with somebody lashing out at the drop of a hat, right? Because they are impatient or because they get frustrated, because they're selfish and they're not getting what they want, and so they lash out in anger. They say things that really hurt, and they do things that lead to very devastating, sometimes even violent consequences in anger, right? Our experience with anger is that when somebody finally blows their top, there is collateral damage everywhere. People suffer because this person decided to finally let loose and spew their venom and anger out. Now, let me tell you guys, although that might have been your experience with somebody's anger, that is not the sort of anger that God has. His anger looks nothing like that, okay? I guess we could maybe sum it up like this. We're going to talk about this for a few more minutes, but maybe we could sum it up like this. We could say that, yes, you can make God angry, but you have to really work at it. You can make God angry. You could do it. There are some things that upset him and anger him. The good news is, though, that he's slow to anger. You have to really work at it in order to end up on God's bad side. Thankfully, I'm glad for it. Now, here's the thing. In 2018... We have kind of moved away from the old-fashioned God is angry sort of philosophy, right? Because that's what we've heard for years, hundreds of years even. God is angry. He's going to judge your kids. He'll condemn you to hell. You know, we've done all these different things. And well, our, our ancestors really latched onto this. The church has even latched onto this in a lot of ways. The, in 2018, the, the thing that we've done instead is we've let go of this God is angry narrative, and we've moved to the totally opposite side of the spectrum, and we started saying, well, God is never angry. Oh no, God is like so peaceful all the time. And there is nothing that would ever upset him. He is totally unflappable. So do what you want. It doesn't really matter. He'll never be upset. But you know, that is not the picture that the Bible presents of God. He is not an angry judge, ready and willing and waiting to squash you, nor is he completely uncaring and he's like, go live your life, hurt yourself, I don't care, do whatever you feel like. No, he is somewhere in the middle. Now, I will tell you guys that God's anger does not negate his love. God's anger does not negate his love. And I can prove it very easily. Ready? Are you loving yeah. Do you get angry? Yeah. Well, there you go. I rest my case. Easy enough, right? Anger does not preclude love. Anger and love are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I would argue that there are times and circumstances and situations that anger is the appropriate response in a loving relationship. So God's anger doesn't mean that he's no longer loving. Don't buy into that lie. And don't buy into the lie that just because God is loving, he cannot be angry. That is not what he says even about himself in the scripture, okay? Now, I've got to tell you something that you may be surprised to hear. People in scripture had a problem with God's anger too. Because again, in our world, people are frustrated. They don't like it. They wish he wasn't angry. Maybe we could ignore those verses. People in the Bible had problems with God's anger too, just like you and me. But what's really interesting is that for most people in the Bible, their frustration was not that God got angry. 
Their frustration was that God didn't get angry enough. Isn't that fascinating? In ancient times, people were more upset by the fact that God didn't get angry enough in their minds. They got more frustrated with the first part of this passage, where God is loving and compassionate and faithful and forgiving to no end. That frustrated them. We tend to latch on the last verse and we're like, oh, I could never believe in a God like that. And they're like, are you kidding? I could never believe in the God who says the things in the first part of the verse. It's like there's this tension in the Bible that gets acknowledged throughout scripture. No matter how God acts, there are gonna be people who say he is too loving and people who say he is too angry. He cannot win if we are the judges, if we are the arbiters, if you and I decide whether or not God is angry or loving or whatever, you and I are gonna have very different opinions on that. He cannot win. It's interesting to me how much tension there is. And I'll just be frank, it it kind of tells me that maybe there's a little bit of truth to this picture of God because he's not a a shallow, superficial, two-dimensional representation. He is fully fleshed out. He is engaged, he cares, he has emotions and feelings, and he wants good things for his creation. So what does God get angry about? I've told you God gets angry. What is it that he gets angry about? God gets angry at sin. That's what God gets angry about. He gets angry at sin. Why? Because sin ruins his children. Remember, God's God's primary relational stance towards us is a father to his children. And so the sin that you and I tend to get caught up in day to day, week to week, year to year, God gets angry about that because it really ruins who we were meant to be. We think sin is just kind of an innocent breaking of the rule. It's barely worth considering. Certainly God shouldn't be angry because I did this and I knew I shouldn't have, but oh well, no big deal, right? But God takes our sin very, very seriously. And you know what? So do you, especially if you're parents. Parents, why do you punish your children for little white lies? It's like they lie about the silliest things, don't they? They lie about stuff that doesn't even matter. They're not even in trouble. You ask them a question, they'll tell you a flat-out, bald-faced lie. And so you actually correct your children in that moment. You will even punish them for lying about very small and trivial matters. Why? Because you know that if you let them tell little white lies today, it may not be too long before they're telling big red lies that have huge and life-altering consequences. By the way, I don't know if big red lies is the right, you know, kind of balance there, but I made it up. It sounds good. We'll roll with it. You get angry with your kids when they sin, when they break the rules, when they do something that is damaging to themselves, the people around them, or their future. And I'm just telling you, God feels the same way about each and every one of us. Listen, God is not angry at people. He is angry at people's sin. God is not angry at people, but he is angry with the consequences that sin reaps in our world. Please understand, the problem with sin is not that we just violate some arbitrary rule that God has set, but every single sin ultimately dehumanizes us. It makes us less than what we were intended to be by our heavenly father. God gets angry when we choose the things that we think will make us happy, but in the end leave us miserable. 
God gets angry when we use and abuse each other and the world that he created. That makes him angry because it's not what he intended for us. Listen, in the same way that you would get angry if you found out that there was a bully on the playground terrorizing your son, God gets angry when he finds out that one of his children is taking advantage of, hurting another one of his children. In the same way that you would get angry if you found out that your daughter had been shoplifting, God gets angry when we take things that don't belong to us, when we rob him of the glory that he's due, when we take from one another things that really, they don't belong to us. God experiences that sort of anger. The same anger, frustration, hurt, heartache, and correction that you will give to your own children. Listen, every time we choose something other than God's best, we settle for something less. Every time we choose something other than God's best, we settle for something less, something less than God intended, something less than God intended for your marriage to be, something less than God intended for your children to be, for your job to be, for our city to be, for our government to be, for our church to be. Every time we choose something other than God's best, we are settling for something less. Sin is a problem, and it's a real thing that God takes seriously. I love the way the author John Mark Comer wrote it. I'm going to read you this little quote from his book, God Has a Name. I highly recommend it. I think it's really good. Look at what he says here. He says, sin is dehumanizing. There is no better word for it. When we sin, we become less than human. We miss the mark of all that our creator intended for our lives. That's why God doesn't even usually have to lift a finger to punish our sin. Sin is often its own punishment. And then he gives you some examples. These aren't the easiest to hear, but man, are they true? He says, the punishment for porn is a warped mind and an inability to see women or men as anything other than objects for your lust. The penalty, the punishment for that sin is a breach of intimacy with your spouse, spouse and eventually an erosion of sexual pleasure. The punishment for lying and cheating is that you eventually get caught. You always get caught. The house of cards that you have constructed will come crashing down. He says the punishment for gossip is that eventually people stop trusting you and you are left not only spiteful and angry and cynical, but alone. You have nothing but a ghosting ignorance of what people are saying about you behind your back. Paranoia becomes your regular state of mind. He says, Yahweh will deal with sin in our lives one way or another. We might not take sin all that seriously, but he certainly does. Can I tell you, God's ultimate goal is a world that is free from sin and selfishness. That's really what God is trying to bring about in me and through me, in you and through you. That's what he is after. God wants a world in which there is no one who is oppressed. God wants a world in which no one oppresses someone else. God wants a world in which there is no lying, no adultery, no investment fraud, no fear, no depression, no hatred of somebody because of their skin tone. God wants a world without those sorts of things. A world in which there are no more religious hucksters who are making millions off the backs of the poor. A world in which there's no more suicide. A world in which there is no more greed. 
a world in which there are no more children going hungry at night. That is what God is after. And that is what our sin has brought about. So when God says he wants to deal with sin, I don't want you to think of it in terms of, oh, God is punishing me because I've been bad. I want you to think about it as God dealing with you as a son or a daughter so that you can live in this wonderful, sin-free, selfless world that he always intended for us. Now, here's the irony. You and I get angry at sin, too. We get angry over sin, just not our own sin. In 2018, we are really good at pointing out the sins of other people. The problems of our world are their fault. We can point to them, whoever they are. They're the reason that our world looks the way that it does. But we don't ever want to acknowledge our own part in this mess. It is really difficult for us to own up to the things that we do that cause brokenness in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and around the world. Can you understand why God would get angry over sin? Because it ruins his children. And his children walk around denying that they have any part in it. And so he's like, guys, I'll do whatever I have to. So you'll open your eyes. You'll see what I'm trying to do both in you and through you. God does get angry and he gets angry over sin that ruins his children. Now, there's some of you here this morning and you're saying to yourself, okay, sure, God's angry with sin and all of his various forms and, and its degrees. I can understand that. I could even accept that, sure. But you still haven't really told me what the heck God is talking about in that verse from Exodus. What does he mean when he says he won't excuse the guilty and he'll lay the punishment of the sins of the parents onto the children? All right, I want you to notice what verse number seven does not say. Read it really closely. Hey, this is important. When you're reading the Bible, you want to read it for what it says, not what you think it says. You want to read it for what's actually written, not what somebody told you was written. Read it real closely and look at verse 7 again. God does not say, Yahweh never tells us, I will punish children in place of the parents. He doesn't actually say that. Now, that's how we might interpret it. That might be how we rephrased or paraphrased. That's not actually what he says here. Now, I'm gonna give you a principle, and I believe if you came to believe this, it really would transform the way you viewed God. When you came across difficult passages like this, when you see God executing judgment on his creation, you'll understand a whole lot better why he does what he does. And it all comes down to this one truth. God punishes sin, not people. God punishes sin, not people. Let me say that one more time. God punishes sin and not people. Hey, what if God doesn't hate people? What if he hates what sin does to people? What if God isn't angry with people? He's angry with what people have done to each other. What if God doesn't punish people? What if he punishes sin in order to set people free? Now, before you accuse me of going liberal, being too progressive, sharpening the, or softening the sharp edges of God here, let me show you a verse. Oh, this verse is so good, you guys. Micah chapter number seven. 
Micah chapter number seven, this is what a follower of God says. This is kind of his prayer. This is his proclamation, his declaration about God and who he is and what God is trying to do. I want you to notice this. He says, where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? Again, woo, yes, I'm all for that God. That's good. You will not stay angry with your people forever. Why? Because God is not only slow to anger, but he doesn't stay angry either. Woo, that's good. You guys are gonna start saying amen in a sack. Because you delight in showing unfailing love. Hey, these next two lines, listen to how similar they are to that passage from Exodus. Why? Because they're actually a repeating of the same words. Because you, God, you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. And then I want you to pay attention to this next sentence. You will trample our sins under your feet. You will throw them into the depths of the ocean. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors long ago. Listen, if we buy into the narrative that God is never angry, we might as well cut that verse out because God is clearly angry over what people have done. He clearly wants to right the wrongs in our world. And if you buy the lie that God never gets angry about anything, then stop reading the Bible because you're gonna cut out a good chunk of it. If you buy the lie that God is only angry and he constantly wants to punish everybody, you're gonna have to ignore the other half of the verses. Look at what the scripture says here. God is after destruction, but it is not the destruction of me and you. It is not the destruction of non-believers or homosexuals or atheists or whoever. God is after the destruction of sin. God wants to destroy the stuff that ruins his children. Yahweh will do whatever he has to do to free us from the grip and consequences of sin so that our sins are trampled underfoot. Look, I know you say, hey, dude, I've read the Bible, and I know there are times where God says he's angry at people and he hates people. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. I know the Bible. That's true. The Bible does say that stuff. But you know what? When you dig deeper, because again, we don't want a superficial relationship. When you dig deeper, you know what you find out? God's angry with those people because they chose to use and abuse one another because they chose sin over a relationship with God, because they chose to cause harm and destruction in the world around them rather than peace and life overflowing. Yeah, God's angry. He does get angry, but he gets angry with sin. He judges sin, not people. So let me see if I can help you. As we wrap up this morning, let me see if I can help you understand kind of this, the ending part here of God's conversation with Moses. How does this thing finally and fully uh, complete itself? All right, remember, God intros himself by name to Moses. I am Yahweh. I am a personal being with whom you can have a personal relationship. And he spends the majority of his dialogue with Moses saying, I am a God of everlasting love, and I am a God of unfailing faithfulness, but he ends his conversation with a warning. 
Essentially, he says, and I'm going to put up here a very loose paraphrase of that last section where God says, I'll judge and lay the sins and all that. This is not what the Bible actually says, but I do believe this is what God is communicating. God ends with this warning where he says to Moses, yes, I am the God of unfailing compassion. I am the God of never-ending faithfulness, but don't think that my kindness means that you can do whatever you want and I won't care. I take sin seriously, and so should you. That's why he says, I won't excuse the guilty. I can't let sin go unpunished. Do you understand? If God lets sin go unpunished, there will just be more sin. Hey, if you get it away with an affair, do you know what you'll do? You will have another affair. If you get away with stealing a little bit of money from your job, you'll just steal more and more and more. God has to address our sin because there is something so bent and broken inside of us that if we get away with just the tiniest bit, we'll try to get away with the whole kit and caboodle. He says, I take sin seriously and so should you. And then he says, don't think that you can hide behind your family either. Sin always has greater consequences than you ever intend. And you know this to be true that often those closest to you have to deal with the fallout of your selfish choices. Some of you are where you are in life today because you have been dealing with the fallout of your parents or your family members' selfish choices. And God tells us from thousands of years ago all the way into the future, just because kids are innocent doesn't mean that they won't be impacted if you choose to go into sin. If you choose the things that are harmful, if you choose to live in ways that are contrary to what I intended for you, there will be collateral damage. Your family and friends will be impacted. It's part of the reason this is so serious. And that's why God says in verse seven, I lay the sins of the parents at the feet of the grandchildren and children. He's not saying I'm going to punish them. He's saying, I'm not gonna protect you from all the consequences of your rebellion and sin. Not even their innocence will protect them from the consequences of your stupidity. Again, it's a very loose paraphrase here, okay? As we wrap up this morning, I wanna give you two quick points, okay? These are very fast, I promise. We'll be done in 60 seconds. Number one, you need to realize that just because bad stuff happens in your life doesn't mean that God is punishing you for sin. I wanna make that really clear. I don't want you to think, oh gosh, bad stuff happened. So now there must be some sort of sin in my life. You read the book of Job and it's actually about bad stuff happening to a guy who hadn't done anything wrong. And so when you go through tough times, you need to be honest and ask yourself, okay, have I been living the way that I should as a follower of Jesus or have I brought some of these consequences onto myself? You need to really ask that question because it could be that God is punishing you for your stupidity or it could be that something else altogether is going on. So that's number one. Number two, I really want, and I don't know, man, maybe this is just because it's important to me. Maybe I needed to hear this as much as anybody. But if you look in that verse, remember what we talked about last week, remember you, or maybe you remember reading it earlier today. God says, I keep my love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. And then he says, there are sins and consequences that can even impact families. But then he puts a limit on it. And he says, only to the third and fourth generation. 
And man, I think that's really, really deep water that you could dive into. I think it's such a beautiful reminder that God's faithfulness will always trump his judgment, that his mercy is always greater than his anger. And it becomes this amazing reminder that for those of us who come from families that have been steeped and stuck in generational sin, through the power of Jesus, you can be free from that. Hey, listen, to the third and fourth generation, maybe you're the fourth and it's time to be free. Maybe you don't have to deal with what your parents did. Maybe you can overcome the sin that so easily entangled the last generation or the generation before that or the generation before that. You don't have to settle for addiction. You can be free. You don't have to live in poverty. God can lift you up. You don't have to walk in hate. He can give you love for people that your parents told you were destined for hell. You don't have to live in unbelief. Your parents can be atheists. Let them believe what they want. You choose for yourself. You can be free from generational sin because God says even the consequences of our family's stupid actions eventually come to an end. Hey, this is who God reveals himself to be. Yahweh, the personal God, compassion, faithfulness, who loves you too much to allow you to choose the things that will harm you and your family.